Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. I don't know the first thing about investing my money, and it is all so overwhelming, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I love that Acorns makes it so easy and how you don't need a lot of money to get started. So head to acorns.com creepers or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid non-client endorsement may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com creepers. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC, Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. I just saw somebody posted this thing. It said, name something that a lot of people like, but you can't stand. And the only comment I can see is the Pina Colada song. (gasps) Oh, Come again? Who is this? I do not know this person. Well, they're dead to me. <laughs> they're dead to me. I'm sorry. Who? Do, how can you not like that song? How could you not like that <laughs> if song? If you like Megan Love at Midnight. What would be your answer to that? Oh, good question. Right, I already have mine. What's yours? I, I actually could list 20 things, but my two most <laughs> unpopular opinions that send people into absolute disarray uh-huh. are chocolate chip cookies. And macaroni and cheese. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogab, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. I have a true crime story for you. Oh, today. Oh, I'm very excited. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? I'm literally holding onto the edge of my table. <laughs> okay. It's been one year and I haven't worn cowboy boots. I haven't worn cowboy boots in a whole year. Someone take my Texan card, lock me up. That- Someone do a podcast. Okay. That is truly a crime. That's my thing. Uh, wait, that's your thing? That's your thing? That's, that's the saying. answer to your question? That's what I'm saying. Oh, we're breaking up. First of all, 
cowboy boots have truly replaced a purse for me. If I'm at an event where I can wear cowboy boots, my ID, my cash, my car key, everything is in my boots. I don't bring anything. I mean, that's handy. That is. That's convenient. You get me in a sundress with pockets and cowboy boots and your girl is thriving. (laughs) All right. Today, Mogab. Yes. I'm going to tell you about the murder of Peter Falconio. I've not heard of this man. No, this case was recommended to me by one of our Australian listeners, Kim. So big shouts to Kim. Thank you so much because she was actually super helpful because – This is like one of the biggest cases in Australia. This is basically Australia's Scott Peterson case. Oh. So I reached back out to her when I decided to cover it, and she sent me a bunch of sources, and so. Oh, Kim. Yes. Shout out to Kim. Thank you, Shouts, Kim. Thank you so much. This episode is dedicated to you, Kim. Dedicated to you, Kim. Little Kim. (laughs) There have been about a million books written on this case. And each Did you read all of them? I had, no. Did you read all of I them? I read one. I read one book and a bunch of articles. <sighs> and each author has their own theories, but so I ended up deciding to use a book by Robin Bowles called Dead Center. Because to research this case, she actually went out to the scene of the crime. She talked to people. There were hours and hours of interviews, so I went with her. I can't wait for this one. Oh, I love a good like big case. They're interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And this one, this might be my genie wish number two case. Well, guess what? Your tight ass genie is giving you one (laughs) wish and one wish only. I think we established that. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. So this week, I'm taking you to the Australian Outback. Yes! Specifically the Northern Territory, which is the northern central part of the country. The Northern Territory is twice as large as Texas at about 1.3 million square kilometers, but... Mm, Says who? Says uh, Google. I looked it up. But back in 2001, when our story takes place, the Northern Territory had a population of less than 200,000. So twice twice the size of Texas, 200,000 people. The majority of the territory is pretty desolate with most Territorians. I learned that they're called Territorians. 
That's cool. Most of them live in coastal towns like the capital of the territory, Darwin, or along the major highway that runs through it. Stewart Highway is a highway in Australia that's basically just a piece of tarmac running all the way from Adelaide in the south to Darwin in the north, just straight up through the middle of the country. It's about 2,800 kilometers long or almost 1,800 miles. It would take 30 hours of nonstop driving to drive the length of it. I'm actually looking up two things. One, a map of Australia so I can follow along. And two, the only like one of the few Instagram accounts that I follow that aren't like actual people. I follow the kangaroo sanctuary (gasps) in Australia. So I'm trying to look up where they are. They have this really cute kangaroo named Roger. Oh. Everyone loves. I have a picture of me in Australia surrounded by kangaroos. I was feeding them. God, would you just – would you stop? They ate out of my hand. (laughs) I'm going to – I'm going to kick you. Like, don't they, like, kick? Or no, they punch. (laughs) I'm going to kangaroo punch you in the throat if you don't stop it. I did not get punched by a kangaroo. Sometimes driving down Stewart Highway, it could be days before you would see another person. Gas stations were few and hard to come by. It's a pretty brutal drive. In general, there are only about two reasons to drive on Stewart Highway in the Northern Territory. Number one, you're a truck driver. In Australia, they have these trucks they call road trains, and that's literally what they are. It's a perfect name for them. So picture like a semi-truck, but with multiple truck beds hooked up together. The Northern yeah, That sounds terrifying. Yeah. The Northern Territory is one of the few places in the world where they're allowed to hook up four trailers together. <laughs> picture Mogab's gigantic eyes. <laughs> I just was like trying to picture, I had a hard enough time parking downtown in my truck this weekend. I'm trying to picture back in that thing. And What if they do a U-turn? They miss their exit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Game over. Yeah. And they use Stewart Highway frequently to deliver their goods. The other type of person driving down Stewart Highway, besides locals, Our tourists probably trying to get to Uluru, also known as Ayers Rock, which is the most recognizable place in the Northern Territory. Uluru is sacred to the Aboriginal people in the area, and it's a huge tourist draw, of course. To get there, tourists generally stay in Alice Springs, which is the second largest town in the Northern Territory with a population of around Mm 26,000. And it's still a six-hour drive from Alice Springs to Uluru, but it's the closest town to Uluru. It was after midnight on July 15th, 2001. Vince Miller was driving a road train down Stewart Highway with his co-driver Rod Adams sleeping in the back. They were just a couple miles outside of Barrow Creek, population 11, when- I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes, more about Barrow Creek later. (laughs) When Vince saw a woman standing in the middle of the highway with her hands tied together and her arms outstretched, waving at them. He swerved at the last minute to avoid her, but worried one of the trailers he was pulling had hit her. So he came to a stop in the middle of the highway, blocking both lanes. So she was standing in the middle. like mm-hmm. He found the woman, who looked frantic. She told him someone was trying to kill her, and that her boyfriend, Peter, was missing. Vince saw that her hands were tied together with, like, plastic electrical ties, and that silver duct tape circled her neck. There were a few smears of blood on her, and there were cuts on her elbows and knees. Rod woke up in the back. He came out of the truck and helped untie her, and she told them the whole story. Tell me. 
She was 27-year-old Joanne Lees, and she said that she and her boyfriend, 29-year-old Peter Falconio, had been visiting Australia from England. They were British tourists as part of a larger world tour. They'd been dating for about six years or so and had relocated to Brighton in England together because Peter was going to school there for a degree in building and construction management. Joanne had been working for a travel agency called Thomas Cook and was able to transfer to a different location in Brighton while Peter went to school. And it was there that she really grew her love of travel. And once Peter graduated, they decided to take a year off and do some traveling. When I lived in Asia, everywhere I went, I'd run into British tourists taking a gap year where like right before university or right after they would take a year and go travel all around the world. It seemed to be super common. This episode is going to give me a Crisis, midlife crisis. We're done here. (laughs) Joanne and Peter had quite the trip planned. They started in Kathmandu in Nepal, where they spent a few days trekking. Then they went around Southeast Asia, starting in Singapore, mild stomping grounds, and then on to Malaysia, Thailand, and Cambodia. I've also been to all of those places. And just (laughs) the next leg of their trip would bring them to Australia. And their plan was to spend three months in Sydney working so they could save money to pay for the rest of their trip. Joanne quickly got a job at Drymox Bookstore, which I've heard is a pretty big, like, bookstore chain in Australia. And it was right in the center of Sydney. And Peter got a job at January Design, which was a furniture factory that assembled furniture imported from Italy. Peter and Joanne both quickly made friends. Joanne got to be really close with her coworkers at the bookstore, and she loved it in Sydney. She would go for coffee breaks with her coworkers, out for drinks with Peter and her friends at bars nearby, and she loved to party at all the clubs and pubs around Sydney. Her manager at Drymox said she basically became the social organizer for all the staff. Joanne just seemed to fit in really well in Sydney, and she really didn't want to leave. The next leg of their trip was to drive through Adelaide to Western Australia and then up Stewart Highway to Darwin, and then they were going to go to New Zealand. But Joanne wasn't ready to leave Sydney just yet. Stewart Highway is where she was, where they like mm-hmm. – Yes. Okay. Where she was standing. Okay. So they extended their stay another couple of months, but after that, Peter was really itching to move on. In May of 2001, Peter found a 30-year-old orange combi camper van. Wait, you cut out. He found a 30-year-old what? Did he have an affair? What happened? (laughs) No. In May 2001, Peter found a 30-year-old orange combi camper van with a white pop top. (laughs) With a white pop top that he bought off a couple that had just finished their travels. I'm definitely keeping that in. (laughs) It just always cuts out at the worst time. (laughs) It came complete with a little kitchen area, and Peter spent a weekend with his coworker Paul replacing the lining panels, rewiring the lighting, and putting in shelves under the dashboard. Peter loved it, but Joanne wasn't so sure about it. The van only had 80,000 miles on it, which was pretty good for a 30-year-old van. Yeah. But if it went over 80 kilometers per hour, which is like 50 miles an hour – the van would start shaking. (laughs) And considering the long stretches of open road they'd be traveling on on their way from Adelaide up Stewart Highway. Oh, you're going over 50. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no speed limit on that road. She just wasn't sure that was the right vehicle for the trip. And she might have been right. Their first stop from Sydney was Canberra, the national capital. 
and then on to Melbourne and Adelaide, and then on to Cooper PD. They ended up picking up a Canadian hitchhiking couple on their way and eventually crossed into the Northern Territory of Australia on July 10th, 2001. Their first stop was Alice Springs, which is basically right in the middle of the country. It's halfway between Adelaide and Darwin. It's like the center of the country. They dropped the backpackers off at a hostel, and then they took the combi van to a quiet street nearby to camp. They stayed in Alice Springs for four nights, partying most nights at the backpacker hostel. That sounds like a, I don't know, like a fun time. It does sound like a fun time. I mean, I hate the camping part, but yeah. (laughs) God, how are we friends? Especially I've been watching Survivor. I'm like, I could never do this. I could (laughs) never, never. Are they still on like season 40? Are they still only giving away a million dollars? Because I'm like, you can go on other shows and basically answer some questions or like, throw something around for 30 minutes and win a million dollars. You don't have to like lose 50 pounds in Australia and like eat roaches. Okay. I thought the same thing. I'll get back to you in December because I'm on season two. So I have no (laughs) idea. So while staying in Alice Springs, Peter decided to get the van looked at. It hadn't been doing too well on the road. It had backfired a couple times and the engine was leaking oil. It made Peter nervous about driving the rest of the way to Darwin. Stewart Highway is not a highway you want to break down on, especially the sections they were driving. This is the only vehicle they have. Right. Yeah. This is oh, what they're taking. Oh, I kind of forgot that, like, this isn't just, like, he bought this old van to, like, take around. They had something else. Duh. Obviously not. Yeah. He bought this for them to drive up. Yeah. Ugh, men. Because <laughs> he obviously didn't consult. Right. You know? Right. Ugh. It can literally be days before you see another person. Forget about making it to a gas station. So... I think a lot of us just truly don't understand – a lot of us Americans, let me phrase, truly don't understand how huge Australia is. It doesn't look so big on the map, you know, on the globe, but it is slightly larger than the continental U.S. Wait, really? Yes. It's bigger. But the outback makes up 70% of the country, but only 5% of the population lives there with the majority of Australians living near the coast. Alice Springs is 16 hours away from Darwin, where they were headed. Alice Springs is in the middle. It's still 16 hours away from Darwin. And there were only... Darwin's at the tippy top. Yeah, and there were only a few tiny towns in between. One of them, Barrow Creek, like I said, population 11, is basically just a gas station and a bar. (laughs) Oh, man, I'd hate to be that bartender. Kind of fun, like that's the hop in place, like around. I mean, but you know, you know who's not talking to who. You better not let so and so. Mm. I'm sure those eleven people are like one family, probably too. Probably, yeah. Do you know? Probably, yeah. So Peter decided to take the van into an auto repair shop in Alice Springs before they made the drive up to Darwin, and the mechanic told them it was probably an issue with the exhaust and that he could have it fixed up for them by the next day. When they came to pick up the van, the mechanic told him he'd replace the fan belt because it was looking super worn. And the mechanic told him he wouldn't have gotten out of Alice with that fan belt. And he said he'd take a bet right now that they wouldn't make it to Darwin. And he would be right. A little foreshadowing. A little foreshadowing. Their initial plan was to leave early the next morning and get as far as they could to Darwin in the daylight. Stewart Highway is not a road you want to drive on at night. Even locals don't do it. 
Apparently, kangaroos are like the deer of Australia, and they'll just stand by the side of the road and wait for a car to jump in front of. <gasps> okay. Ooh. <laughs> I can take people all day. Don't don't me with the animals. The sides of the road are just like littered with dead kangaroos. <gasps> and up until I read that <sighs> sentence in this book, Uluru was like top of my bucket list, but now I'm not so sure I want to go. Oh, my God. I could not. Sometimes I if know. I see a little raccoon on the side of the road. Oh, I cry. Russell's like... They're just taking a nap. I think about their families. <gasps> oh, no. When I get a little lizard on my car and I notice it as I'm driving, I get really sad because I'm like, I'm taking you so far away from your family. You're never going to find your home again. Like, uh, And you know his lizard mom is like, I told Derek to quit climbing <laughs> on cars, you know? And exactly. then here he is on the top of your SUV. Peter and Joanne's last day in Alice Springs happened to be the day of the annual Camel Cup, which are camel races held just south of Alice Springs every year that just happened to be taking place during their stay. And they were persuaded to stay and watch, even though they were trying to get to Tennant Creek that night, which was about six hours away. They ended up staying at the Camel Cup way later than they planned, and they didn't end up leaving until around 4 p.m. to head north to Darwin. Again, not an area where you should be driving after dark. Yeah. I don't want to drive at dark ever. Yeah. Joanne and Peter stopped for gas at 622 that night in a small town called Tea Tree, which is a town of 150 people surrounded by indigenous communities and full of amazing artists. A thriving metropolis. Thriving metropolis. They watched the sunset and smoked a joint at the Tea Tree Roadhouse. And then continued on the completely pitch black highway, passing Barrow Creek around seven, but they didn't stop. There wasn't a single other car on the road the entire time they drove until Peter noticed a car following them after they passed Barrow Creek. What happened next has been the source of endless speculation. But this is what Joanne says. Oh, the car behind them started making Peter nervous and he wished they would just overtake him. He slowed down a bit to make it easier for the car, and finally the car pulled up alongside them, but then just matched his speed, didn't pass him. And they saw that it was a man and his dog. He was pointing at the back of the van and motioning to stop. Joanne did not want to stop. It was pitch black. They were in the middle of nowhere in a country that was foreign to them. But Peter was worried something was wrong with the van, and he pulled over just after 8 o'clock, about six miles past Barrow Creek. Remember completely pitch black at this point. So the driver pulled up behind them and he told them that sparks had been flying from their exhaust pipe the whole time that he'd been following them. Joanne said the man was over 40 and looked like a local. He was about six feet tall and had a dog in the front seat of his truck. She said he was driving some kind of small utility truck. They're super common in this part of Australia. Peter told Joanne to wait in the van and he got out to talk to the driver. They were standing at the back of the van in between the two cars, and Peter came around and told Joanne to rev the engine, so she moved into the driver's seat and did as he asked. Everything seemed to look good, and Joanne heard Peter thank the man for his help. Joanne said he sounded friendly, but something just seemed off. At one point, she made eye contact with the man through the mirror, and he made her nervous in a way that she couldn't explain. I mean, listen, women have intuition, instinct, mm-hmm. sixth sense, intuition. Like, we know. Mm-hmm. 
The driver and Peter stood on the side of the road looking at the engine while Joanne revved it. Then Joanne heard a loud bang, and she thought that might have been a backfire. She (gasps) immediately stopped revving the engine and looked out the window to see the driver standing there pointing a handgun at her head. (gasps) She described the gun as like an old-timey revolver with a swirl pattern on the handle, and she said he looked really calm. Oh, I got chills. The driver opened the door and told her to switch off the engine, but Joanne was frozen. She couldn't move, so the driver reached over and switched off the van. He told her to move to the passenger side and put her head down and her hands behind her back, but she remained frozen. So he shoved the gun against her head and repeated the instructions, and that time she did as she was told. Joanne called out to Peter. She kept expecting him to come save her, but he never came. So she was, like, yelling for him. And the yeah. guy, like, just didn't. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. The m- Kristen, I have a fear that I'm going to be told to do something, and I'm just going to already think, like, okay, this guy's going to kill me. And I'm just going to mouth off and not do the thing. And, like, I need to get a grip. <laughs> the man got Joanne out of the van and threw her on the ground. He tried to tie her feet together with tape, but she kicked and kicked and kicked, and he never got her feet tied. He punched her in the face, and Joanne thought she was going to die. He bound her hands behind her back with five cable ties. It was like one around each wrist and three linked in the middle like paper streamers. Yeah, like a chain, like a paper chain. Like a paper chain, yes. The smaller loops in the middle were covered by this black porous tape known in the outback as 100-mile-an-hour tape. A dime a dozen. They're everywhere. Huh. They were described as like all these things that he used were described as things that a truck driver out there wouldn't leave home without. Like would they just need like special supplies because of the – Yeah, they said this 100 mile an hour tape was called that because you could – like if something happened to your car, you could put this 100 mile an hour tape on it. You could go 100 miles an hour and your car wouldn't fall apart. (laughs) Oh, He tried to put silver duct tape around her mouth, but she was thrashing around so wildly that it landed on her neck and in her hair. Mm. Finally, he gave up and dragged her to his truck. He put a sack over her head and pushed her through the passenger door. She was completely terrified. And then the man left her there to walk around to the other side of the truck. She thought she heard dragging noises and thoughts flew through her head. Had Pete been shot? Was he dead? Why was this man doing this? For money? Was he going to rape her? Was she going to die? Like, she, there's nowhere to, like, really run either. Right? Like, I mean, she could, I like, mean, they're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Right. So it's like, she, then she just gets tired and he runs her down. I mean, there's not, like, a place you can run and, like, knock on a door. Right. You can't run to anywhere for help. But she knew then that she had to try to escape or she was going to get killed. She couldn't let him take her wherever he was planning. She managed to get the sack off her head. I have no idea how when her hands are tied behind her back. But she sounds like a boss. Yeah. She managed to escape out of the truck and took off, running into the pitch black night in one of the most isolated areas in the country. Maybe in the world. It was in the 50s that night, and all she had on was shorts and a t-shirt, but her mind was only on one thing, surviving. God, I don't know. I'm scared of the dark. I don't know what I would have done. I know. She couldn't run very far with her hands behind her back. It was hard, and it sucked out her energy. She couldn't see anything. She kept tripping, and she could hear him behind her and knew he was coming after her. She knew she couldn't outrun him, so she crawled into a bush and just hid. 
The desert was completely silent, and she thought her heartbeat would give her away. Oh, I am flipping out. She heard his footsteps. She saw the light from his flashlight. He came close several times, maybe 10 feet away at one point. (gasps) He had a flashlight? He had a flashlight, but he didn't see her. She thought the dog was out there with him, but he just ignored her. Yes, Joanne, come on. She heard the man drive away in the combi, but she told herself to just wait. Not too long after, she heard him coming back on foot. She was terrified he was going to come look for her again, but he got back in his truck. She thought he was dragging something heavy, and she thought it might be Peter. And finally, she heard his truck drive away. Oh, I would have st- just stayed there until the sun rose. Basically, she did. She was too scared to move, and she stayed hidden for hours and hours. It was early in the morning, around 1 o'clock, when she finally got up the nerve to leave her hiding place and venture out. It had been five or six hours at this point. Her arms were still tied behind her back, but she was able to wiggle them under her body and get them to the front of her, putting one leg through her arms at a time. She tried to get the manacles off, but nothing she did worked. She had a tube of lip balm in her pocket, and she got it out, and she tried to grease up the manacles on her wrist to try and slide them off. And when that didn't work, she tried to chew them off, but no such luck. Her combi and the truck were gone, and she didn't see Peter anywhere. Finally, the road train came by that found her. She was hoping they weren't working with the driver. She had no way of knowing for sure. But who knows how long it would have been before another car drove past. And so she took the chance and flagged him down. After she told Vince and Rod the Cliff's Notes version of that story, Vince immediately put everything he'd collected, the bits of tape, all of that, into his toolbox and then locked the toolbox up for safekeeping. Even then, he knew this was going to be big, and that stuff was evidence. They looked around for Peter, but he was nowhere to be found, and once Vince realized the attacker was armed and still at large, he decided the police were better suited for that search. They drove her to the pub in Barrow Creek, basically the only business open there, to use the phone and call the police. God, it's like you have no other option, but I don't know that I would just be readily jumping in, like a car with someone i don't know like i just i know i would have just walked i I don't know it was like six miles to the pub and it's not like she had google maps to tell her that you know she didn't know the area so when joanne got to the pub the owners helped her and took care of her she met kathy a bartender at the pub and kathy's dog tex Kathy told Joanne Tex was a blue healer, and later Joanne would say that Tex resembled the dog that had been with the driver. (gasps) Oh, did it though? Or do you just think that, you know? Right, exactly. I mean, they're, yes. (laughs) Don't get me started on the dog yet. Hang on. They called the closest police station to them, which was in Tea Tree, but it went to voicemail. So they called Alice Springs, which was at least two and a half hours away. The senior sergeant there told them voicemail. To, yeah. The senior sergeant in Alice Springs told him to stay exactly where they were and make sure Joanne didn't do anything that might destroy evidence, like changing clothes or washing anything. Unfortunately, that advice came a little too late. Rod had already used a first aid kit to tend to some of Joanne's wounds. She had pretty bad scrapes on her knees. Soon, an officer from Alice Springs called to ask Joanne some more questions. And when Joanne got off the phone, she made it seem like the police didn't believe her story. 
The police were certainly puzzled by the whole thing, and her story was bizarre, but they took it seriously and put things in motion. The master sergeant in Alice Springs, Jeff Sullivan, called the Tea Tree Police to tell them to set up a roadblock on the highway, but couldn't tell them exactly what they were looking for yet. Several other communities all along Stewart Highway were called with similar orders to stop anyone attempting to leave the territory, but it wasn't a perfect response. For a start, they didn't actually put up the roadblocks until over 12 hours after the attack. Yeah, he gone. Yeah. Also, it sounds like this is just a, like, road with, like, just flat land, so you could just, I don't know, go off the road around it. Yes, exactly. And, there, like, yes, there were tons of ways to get around the roadblocks, and a lot of them were just letting locals right through, which was not helpful when the suspect might be (laughs) a local. Right. They were criticized for being disorganized and overlooking smaller exits from the highway. But even the big city, Alice Springs, had a population of 25,000 people. That's a lot bigger than Barrow Creek's 11, but I'm sure these are not people with, like, massive amounts of emergency drill practice on what to do when you need to lock down Stewart Highway, you know? I think expecting a perfect response from these people is a bit unreasonable, especially since it took six hours to even alert the police to the crime because she was out there hiding for so long, and even longer for them to get an actual description of the man they were looking for. But the fact of the matter is, what they did just wasn't good enough to keep the man from getting out, and he could have been over 600 miles away by then. One thing police should have done and didn't was get an aboriginal tracker involved right away. But it took them a week to even call them. The abilities of these aboriginal trackers is just astonishing. They are some of the best trackers in the entire world. And it's common for them to work with police. So it was a really bad call not to get them in sooner. And we'll get into the trackers in a little bit, but it was way too late by the time they were utilized. Okay, wait, though. Mm -hmm. Aboriginal tracker Mm -hmm. or cadaver dog? Who do you have? Aboriginal tracker, 100%. Don't you remember the cadaver dog that couldn't even, that hit <laughs> on the. Aboriginal yeah, okay. trackers wouldn't be hitting on the boat ramp, Moga. I'm talking about a like high quality, certifiable cadaver dog. Aboriginal tracker every day of the okay. week. For two days, they didn't let anyone pass through the roadblocks. And tents just started popping up along Stewart Highway as the lines backed up and people waited to be let through. Could you imagine driving on a road and they don't let you through for two days? You got to stay there for two days. No, like where do I go pee? I get nervous when I on have the side like, of the road. traffic. <laughs> yeah, you got to go. A big problem was that the truck that Joanne described was a dime a dozen in that area. Those utility trucks are like little pickups with a big canopy or some type of cover over the back. It would be like if you came to Houston and said the guy was driving a black pickup. Like, that's not going to get you very far. Joanne's description of the man also couldn't have been more vague. She said he was average height and build, 40 to 45 years old, possibly older, with dark, gray-streaked, straight hair to the shoulder, and a long, thin face and a droopy gray mustache. She said he had heavy bags under his eyes, and he had a deep voice with an Australian accent. I don't know. That doesn't feel vague. I feel like that's pretty descriptive. I mean, all the, like, facial hair and droopy eyes and stuff. Okay. It kind of sounds like Santa Claus, but. I do agree with you. Every place said that it was vague, 
that her description was vague, that it kind of got in my head that do all Australian men in the outback look like that? <laughs> do they all well, have droopy mu- – is that like a common thing, like the droopy mustaches and long hair? I just kind of thought maybe that's just the style out in the outback. I don't know. Maybe. Because they all said that it was like a very vague, like that could be anybody. <laughs> like, I, I thought you were going to say like white male, you know? Right. I I do agree. And honestly, I also think people went hard on Joanne and we'll get into why and we'll get into how in a little bit. But sometimes I think that they phrased things in a way to like make her look bad and saying like this description is vague when she's like talking about his droopy gray mustache, like find a guy with a droopy gray mustache. Vince, the road train driver, he took police out to show them where he picked up Joanne and where they'd looked for the van. And in the bright light of day, they saw it, the combi van parked off the road along the fence line, which would have been at too much of an angle from the road for his truck's headlights to catch it the night before. But they found it. He also showed police a small pile of dirt he'd noticed the night before that looked freshly dug and had looked bloodied the night before. It was the size of an irregularly shaped dinner plate is how it was described in this book. It had been flattened out that day, but Vince said it had been about five inches high the night before. And up to this point, it seems like most of the police had been having a hard time believing Joanne's story. Why? I guess it just seemed so bizarre to them that this guy would just pull up behind them and then attack them. But finding the van and finding what looked like blood on the road was changing their tune. God. Police formed a search party to look for Peter. They started a line search, shoulder to shoulder, through the brush, going foot by foot, looking for signs of a struggle, of heavy objects being dragged along, of a panicked flight through bushes, footprints, cigarette butts, or Peter Falconio's body. The only thing they found was the lid to Joanne's lip balm lying under a small bush. They also found a broken branch and three partial footprints, which looked like they probably would match Joanne's sandals. More than 100 police, tons of volunteers, and eight aircrafts, including some that were privately owned, joined in the search. Aboriginal trackers were eventually called in to help, but not a lot was found. Police had the van towed back to Alice Springs, which contained all of Joanne's clothes and personal items, leaving her with basically nothing, and they started interviewing Joanne. They questioned her relentlessly. She told her story over and over and over. And everyone just thought her story was so bizarre, there was just no way it could be true. A lot of people doubted her story. Finding the lid to the lip balm in the bushes led credibility to her story, but people still thought she could have left it there on purpose. They just didn't understand how a man so experienced in the bush wouldn't have found her when he had a dog and a flashlight. Well, I don't know what they think her motive would be in making that up. Do they think that she killed Peter and that's like her story? I think that's what a lot of people thought, that she was involved in his disappearance and had made up this whole story to get away with murder. And also as the owner of a very good boy, not all dogs are <laughs> are trackers, you know? <laughs> yes, and we we will get into the dog because the, oh, the dog is like we will get into the dog. <laughs> he's a good boy too, right? Yes, he's a good boy. 
I always pictured this area where she was hiding as like empty desert with some little bushes here and there that she was like huddled under because that's it was, literally what I pictured. Yeah, it like, was always shrubs. Yes, exactly. It was always described as really sparse. But pictures I found of the crime scene showed that the bushes she was talking about were actually pretty big. And it was more like a forest of these giant bushes than scattered around like I had pictured. So I don't know if I just have a different definition of sparse scrub than people in the Australian outback, or if the pictures I have were inaccurate or an angle that was misleading. But So is it, it like brush, like a bunch of brush, basically? Like you could hide in it. I'm picturing she's yes. like, it's tucked behind a little like boxwood. That is exactly shrub. what I always pictured until I looked up this picture of the crime scene. Let me just send it to you. Oh, my God. Those are trees. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, that, is, that is a tree. It looks like a bush because you can't see the. Right. Okay, that also explains to me how he didn't find her. Yeah. I just think that it was a lot easier to hide there than I originally thought. And in the pitch black night, they said there was no moon that night. Vince Miller, when he's driving his road train. He says, there's no moon. It is pitch black. You can't see anything except for what is directly in your headlights. So I think it's possible. And as for the dog, Joanne first said she thought the dog was out looking for her. And then she said the dog stayed in the ute in his utility truck, that he wasn't out sniffing around for her. And there are so many questions where this dog is concerned. And we'll get into some of them in a little bit, but we will answer none of them. But also, you're right. The The dog, just because he's out there doesn't mean he's a tracker dog. Yeah. Like, he may not be trained. Like, Right. Police also couldn't figure out why the driver would have given up searching for her, especially if he did murder Peter Falconio. She was the only witness to the crime, and he had all night to look for her. It just didn't make sense to investigators that he would just give up. Joanne thought Peter could still be alive. She hadn't seen his body. She wasn't even certain what she'd heard was a gunshot. And she urged the searchers to keep looking for him. She was also still in shock. She hadn't slept in 24 hours. And the police were constantly repeating the same questions to her. And she could tell by the questions they were asking that they doubted her story. So I'm sure she was also so frustrated. Yeah, I definitely don't know how she thought Peter was still alive. I mean, definitely was a gunshot, right? Like I don't know. Yeah. Well, that she assumed she heard the loud bang and then saw a gun. So she assumed it was a gunshot and that he'd been shot, but she didn't know. She hadn't seen the body. So she thought that he was still out there. It was a couple of days before she was finally taken to a hospital in Alice Springs where she had her DNA taken and her injuries cataloged and photographed. This was the only medical attention Joanne ever received, and she had no counseling offered or provided either. <sighs> a forensic scientist named Carmen Eckhoff headed up to Barrow Creek to investigate the crime scene. She found a pool of blood on the road, a considerable amount, but no blood splatter around it. A lot Wait, of it- how, how far after is this that there's still blood? How many days? This is like the – I think she went out there like the next day. Like they're interviewing oh, okay. her within 24 hours and then she's like heading out there like that day. A lot of it was covered in dirt and she said you could actually see where it had been like fixed up to try and cover up the scene. She also saw three other smaller bloodstains on the road. This suggested that somebody had, like, walked through the puddle of blood, 
But another explanation, if the crime was staged, was that someone dumped out a container of blood and then, like, flicked it to empty it. That's also kind of what it looked like. Hmm. She saw no drag marks to show a bleeding body might have been dragged off the road. There was also no blood splatter on the back of the combi, even though Joanne said Peter was standing right behind it when she heard the gunshot sound. She also took a sample of the steering wheel and the gear shift, since whoever attacked Joanne and Peter must have had to drive the combi off to where they'd found it hidden, and they were hopeful that they could get some DNA from that. Later, one of the aboriginal trackers, Teddy Egan, who was widely regarded as the territory's best tracker, said that he did find signs someone had been dragged from the roadside. But it was hard to tell because of all the crime scene contamination from police and searchers stomping all over the place. Yeah, they were walking shoulder to shoulder. Shoulder to shoulder, foot by foot, and they hadn't called Egan in until a week later. And there was almost nothing left for him to see that hadn't been completely destroyed by the investigators and search parties. A big deal was made of how Joanne's footprints were the only ones found at the scene. But actually, there were hundreds of footprints found around. They just all belonged to police. And it's not like there was a trail of Joanne's footprints going from the road to the bush, but then nobody else's footprints. They just found her footprints by the bush, which was a fairly protected area with not as much stomping around. So if the rest of Joanne's footprints weren't found, I just don't think it's a huge surprise that they didn't find the footprints of her attacker either. Well, also now that I've seen the photo, because when you first were saying this and I was thinking of like a desert and like footprints, it was more of like dirt and sand. Like this looks pretty much like a grassy It's red dirt. There's red dirt there. Right. That's what I was picturing only. But yeah. But yeah, it's super grassy. After half a day there, Egan said, the tracker, he said that he was sure that a man had been shot at the scene and a gunman had left the area. He also said he thought the driver had a flat tire. But police basically dismissed everything Egan told them. They then investigated the combi van and they found no blood inside. Everything was sent off to the lab to find any evidence they could that someone else, anyone else besides Peter and Joanne, had been there. They also looked at the manacles that Joanne had been tied with. They found her DNA on them and tons of strawberry lip balm from when she'd greased them up to try to get them <laughs> off, which was smart of her to try, but it also rubbed off whatever DNA would have been on top of them. But police looked farther under the tape and they did find a very small amount of DNA there. Whose? Whose DNA? Well, they don't know yet. The forensic tests came back, and it all seemed so strange. Her clothes had no dirt, twigs, grass stains, or burrs on them. Nothing to show that she'd gone through what she said she'd gone through. But again, you know, it was hours before police got to her, and by then she'd started cleaning herself up. There were a few smears of blood on her T-shirt. They ran all the blood, and one after another, it all came back as a match to Joanne, Except one. <gasps> that one came back with a completely different profile. It didn't match Peter either, but it was male. And it also matched the DNA profile found on the steering wheel and the gear stick. Oh, ooh. It was the DNA from her T-shirt was a full, beautiful DNA profile. And they were hoping they could match it to a national or an international database. But no such luck. 
they were taking her seriously. They weren't acting on their doubts. They weren't dismissing her because they had their doubts. They were treating it like she was telling the truth. But they did have their doubts. And we'll get into it. Mm -hmm. So witnesses started calling in to say they'd seen something that night. The first witness saw the two cars parked together on Stewart Highway at 745. But no sign of any people or activity, even though that's when Joanne was supposed to be fighting off the man. Mm -hmm. Another witness said that a second vehicle, not the combi, leaving the scene and driving north at 8 p.m., which doesn't fit with the gunman driving off in the combi and then coming back for his truck. The next witness passed at 9 o'clock and saw only a combi off the highway and in the bush and possibly a flashlight. None of this really matches Joanne's statements, but also... Like, witness statements should be taken with a grain of salt. Like, eyewitnesses are the absolute worst evidence. So I don't think that you can say, oh, these witness statements didn't exactly line up with exactly what Joanne said happened. Therefore, she's lying. It's this big discrepancy. If you look at it a different way, you could say, oh, this kind of supports what she said. They saw two cars at 745. Yeah. She said that's when she's fighting the guy off. Maybe her timing is a little off. Yeah. I don't know. She's... Right, like she's literally fighting for her life. I don't think she's like, oh, I'm fighting for my life at 8.15. And how do we know that this witness was exactly correct about their time? Do you look at the clock and write it down when you see a car on the side of the road? Right, no. So I just don't think any of this. we don't even think she had a watch. Like, I don't think Joanne had a watch or phone or anything with her either. Yeah, she didn't have a phone. This was 2001. Oh, yeah. Like, she's not having a- She didn't have her pager? Yeah. (laughs) No. No. So four days after the attack, Peter's father, Luciano, and brother Paul came out to Alice Springs. Some friends of Joanne's from Sydney came out as well to stay with her while she was trying to deal with everything. Mm -hmm. She started getting hounded by the media. Everyone asking her for an interview. This was like the biggest case in the world. She's the one witness. Everybody wanted to talk to her. She finally did sit down with a journalist who was like a friend of a friend. But when the interview came out, it showed that she'd been critical of the police and the way they questioned her. And she got told off for giving the interview by the police. But she didn't have anybody there like guiding her on what to say to the media or what not to say or anything like that. And the media wasn't too happy with Joanne either. Like I said, this was the biggest case in a long time, and she wasn't giving them anything. She was very reluctant to tell them any details of her story, and I just don't think she knew how to handle herself when she suddenly had all this media attention. Right. Then she's coming out and saying things like critical of the press, that they were twisting her words, that she didn't trust them. So the press completely turned on her. They started questioning a lot of Joanne's story. I'm just really shocked. Well, okay, never mind. That's it. I was going to say, if they believed her, like, this person's boyfriend, boyfriend, husband, boyfriend Boyfriend. was murdered, Mm -hmm. and she was attacked. Mm -hmm. And, like, how are you being critical of this person? But, again, they think she's making it up, so. Yeah. They started questioning a lot of her story. They couldn't see how she'd managed to get her arms to the front of her body with the cable ties. And it wasn't until nine months later that the police would actually show the manacles and they actually had to show a recreation of the manacles because they'd taken the original ones apart. It's hard to tell what they're actually made of because if they're cable ties, they're not like the little zip ties that we see here to organize your cords and stuff. They're a lot bigger than that. 
So when the police showed them on their hands, their hands were just barely behind their back. It wasn't like super tight all the way. It was like just there was a space there. And she's like a thin, slender woman. Like she's, you know. But honestly, also, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like why would this guy who just shot a man in cold blood put on these makeshift handcuffs that are so loose that she is able to get her hands to the front of her body? Like it just is weird. And he'd also have had to had them already made in his truck. Like, this wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. Like, he had those manacles pre-made in his truck waiting there. So there, he, like, made them to be linked like that. They don't come like that. I guess I don't really know what a manacle is. Well, he it, they just call them manacles. He They're totally made. He made them looping cable ties together and then wrapping them with this tape, this 100-mile-an-hour okay, yeah. tape. He couldn't have made those manacles at this scene. And so that meant that this wasn't some crime of opportunity. It means that he basically hunted them down. And after all that trouble, he gives up searching for her after an hour. And then he took Peter's body with him instead of leaving it with the combi. I mean, there are some weird stuff happening with this whole story. Wait a second. Hmm. Did you solve it? Bitch, no, I'm just over here changing my mind. (laughs) Other questions kept arising about Joanne's story. Like, how did the man and his dog not find her? What was the Mm -hmm. dog doing? Where was any physical evidence of a third party even being at the scene? All of the physical evidence, apart from Peter's blood, belonged to Joanne, and the physical evidence didn't match Joanne's story at all. How did Peter Falconio's body disappear completely without a trace? How did Joanne get the sack off her head with her hands tied behind her back? Okay, okay. Uh How did she get her hands to the front of her body? I mean, all of these questions, even the logistics of the crime itself were hard to understand. You know, she's saying the gunman is standing by the combi with a pistol, a sack to put over her head, duct tape to tie her legs up, some other tape to gag her, the cable ties for her hands. Then he turns off the ignition, grabs a hold of her, puts the handcuffs on her all while she's struggling and kicking. How did he manage all of that gear in his hands? What what, what was he, an octopus? I don't know, because I tried to carry in two drinks today from Starbucks and I spilled half of mine down the front of me. No. Just trying to unlock the door. That's That's two Starbucks. That's sad. I know. No one understood how she got out of the truck, especially since her story kept changing. First, she says she's thrown. He took her out of the front and threw her into the back. Then she's saying she was in the front and she crawled through to the back and then lifted the canvas cover and got out the truck that way. I mean, she says it several different ways. I think, to be honest, I don't think it matters how she got out of the truck. I think she was trying to get out of the truck however she could if her story is true. And I don't think that it's like a big deal that she can't remember exactly how she got out. I don't know. What do you think? I want to I believe her. Like everything in me is like, I'm a woman. This woman is attacked. I believe her. But now I'm like, yeah, like this car comes up behind you, kills your boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And then doesn't, like, went through the trouble of trying to basically kidnap you. Mm -hmm. But I could see both sides. Like, I could see people saying, like, why would he do all of that? And then you run off and he doesn't search for you. 
but maybe he's not trying to hang around a murder scene and realized she really has nowhere to go. I'm going to leave before someone else maybe does come or she, I don't know. But it's like you're in the middle of nowhere. Who's going to come and stop? Like who's going to? Well, this tra- this trailer, this car, tra- well, that was six hours later, though. And she was in the middle of the road waving her hands down, you know, waving him down. I don't know. Aboriginal <sighs> trackers were shown the place where Joanne said she'd hidden for five hours, and they said that nobody had stayed in that spot for long. <gasps> also, the footprints showed that she'd been running, but there were no footprints in pursuit. And then the fact that they still hadn't managed to find a single vehicle like the one she described, one with a crawl through space from the seats to the bed of the truck in the back, which is how she said she'd gotten out. Police also didn't think that Joanne could have heard Peter talking to the driver at the back of the van when she was sitting up front. Revving it. Yeah. Well, when she was just up front, which I think you could have. They also thought it was quite a coincidence that the dog she saw at the hotel happened to resemble the dog that the driver had with him. And also that they they brought up this point that she tripped over a canvas bag on her way into the hotel. And they were like, is that what gave her the idea to put the sack over her head? Like, (laughs) like they think she's Kaiser Soze, you know, just making up a story based on things as she's telling it. Right, like, oh, there was a dog. There was a dog. Oh, there's a right. bag over my head. That that canvas sack would have looked good over my head. <laughs> and police asked her all these questions, but she stuck to her story. And as I said before, there's a possible reason that there's very little physical evidence to back up her story. And yeah, that's that, that the crime scene was completely tattered all to hell. And true. also something else weird. Three months later... They were doing another search of the area. They found Joanne's tube of lip balm and the pieces of tape she said she'd chewed off when she was trying to get out of the manacles. How did they all miss? How did everyone, including the trackers, how did all of them manage to miss this? And what else did they miss? And then what? No, they said it was in great condition, actually. That is false. I wasn't dirty or anything. No, you leave my lip balm in the mm-hmm. truck overnight and that you try and use it and it's like a mess all over your face. Yeah. This is Australia. I know. I guess it's cold at night. I don't know. I don't know. <sighs> but if they managed to miss all that, what else did they miss? Or did they not miss it? And yeah, somebody went and stuck it there. I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. I'm really going to need you to quit telling me stories that I already know don't have an ending. <laughs> it has an okay. ending. I just don't think it's a great one. Well, not solved. There. Well, it is solved. I just don't oh, know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can't wait. There were so many questions in this case that it became a media sensation. And there were camps on both sides. There was pro and anti-Joanne. Neither Joanne nor the police were giving the media much information. And so the media was just taking little nuggets of information, making huge assumptions out of them, and just running with it. And Joanne wasn't their favorite person to begin with, so they had no problem running wild with their headlines about her. (laughs) And this is about the same time. This is 2001. I bet the real clever guy that came up with Foxy Noxie was definitely a part of this British media mailstorm on... Joanne. 
They continued to hound Joanne for an interview, offering her tons of money, some up to half a million dollars for an interview. But she kept Dang turning. Dang girl, take it. I know. She kept turning down the offers. I kind of think, well, maybe not. Maybe, I was going to say that could be really suspicious. Mm-hmm. Or I could also see like if you really love this man and you're devastated, not wanting to like make a media profit off of it. of it. Yeah. She even refused to do a press conference. She made Peter's brother, Paul, read a statement that she'd written. The media hated this. They were so mad that she wasn't giving them anything. They decided they're going after her. It didn't help that just a few months earlier, a very similar thing had happened in England, where both Peter and Joanne were from. A couple had been traveling when they were stopped by a man who stabbed and killed the boyfriend. The media had been hugely sympathetic to the girlfriend, Tracy Andrews, that had survived the attack. Only it turns out she'd actually been the one to kill her fiance. It was her fiance. So because of that, the media in England yeah, are telling reporters, oh, Joanne must be guilty and to get her. But it's really interesting because it was really held against Joanne how cold she was in the media. She was called rude and standoffish. And it got brought up at least four times in this book that I read that she never once thanked the lady at the bar for that kept bringing her tea the day after her boyfriend went missing, possibly murdered, oh and God. she was attacked. She, she never said thank you. She a murder. Yeah, she never said thank she, you. It, it, multiple times. I wanted to just scream, so what? It's like yeah, she just witnessed a murder, right? you know? They never saw her break down and cry. She wasn't emotional the way a woman is supposed to be emotional. Uh, so that again. Yeah, so that meant she must not care very much and she murdered him. But here's the thing. Tracy Andrews cried all over the place. She was a sobbing, crying machine, wailing about her murdered fiance. And she was the one that, that actually murdered. did it. So can we just all say you cannot use behavior to tell these things? And man, I don't know where I stand. What camp are you? Are you going to tell me? I will tell you at the end. Yeah. And I wasn't I wasn't even going to bring this part up because it's brought up in every single thing about this case. And I just don't think it's this big deal. Everyone made it to be. It actually pisses me off what a big deal everyone made about this. So at one press conference, Joanne shows up in this like tight pink tank top with the words cheeky monkey printed across the chest. Okay, I mean... (laughs) Uh, I don't I understand what you're saying here right and we've gone on record saying we don't shame our our sisters right for what they are wearing however no it's a bad look I get that it's a bad look (laughs) but I don't mean I don't think it means anything and here's the thing cheeky monkey I mean I do need to know what that means (laughs) well cheeky was that her first screen name cheeky oh my god that was her aim screen name 2001 (laughs) yes Look, yeah, should she God, have why worn something else? why is that else? not a date party? Why isn't that a theme? Oh, Cheeky monkey. Date party. You have to dress as your first screening. <laughs> like, either dress up as it or it's got to be on your T-shirt. Like, why haven't we done that? Oh, my God. Yes. Here's the thing. The police had all her clothes. Her choices were pretty limited. And she really just wasn't too worried about what shirt she was wearing when he went missing. This is what she says. So, of course, judgments are drawn. Yeah. and Wait, I'm sorry. She was wearing that when? At a press conference. Oh. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah, should she have worn something else to a press conference about her missing boyfriend? Sure. But does it actually mean if she's telling the truth or not? Does it have any bearing on that? No. 
It, this to me is Amanda Knox doing cartwheels in the police station. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter. Like people want someone who's just gone through a trauma to act a certain way and apparently wear a certain shirt. I got so mad every time I read somebody calling her rude. Like being rude doesn't make <laughs> rude. you a murderer. Being selfish or self-centered doesn't make you a murderer. We got to be polite. Right. got to be, you know. But she did do some things that were a little shady and we'll get to that. So police went to a Shell truck stop north of Alice Springs. Gas stations are very few and hard to come by along Stewart Highway. So drivers take advantage when they can. And most truck drivers stop off at this Shell when they're leaving Alice. They asked for security footage and they found someone that resembled the man and the truck Joanne described. So they asked the attendant at the Shell if he remembered serving the guy. The attendant remembered the man well. Ugh, I'm flip-flopping. Here I go. The attendant said the man got $115 worth of gas, and he was a little worried the guy was just going to take off without paying. So he'd written down his license plate numbers, but he'd thrown the paper away. Hmm. They showed Joanne a picture of the man in the video, but she said he looked too old, and the man in the image had shorter hair than Joanne had described. So the tapes moved pretty low on the police's priority list. They made copies of all the tapes, but they sat in an in-trade, almost completely forgotten about. The chief of police would even announce at a press conference that no such tapes existed, not knowing that it sat inside police headquarters. It was nearly 19 days later that the tapes were released, showing the man and asking if anyone could identify him. And police were never able to get the license of the truck off the video. Like the license plate? Right. Teddy Egan, that tracker, he said he recognized the man in the videotape as a man named Dave the Ringer. And there was a story floating around the Aboriginal community about a man holding a community up at gunpoint soon after the attacks and telling them to fill up his car. But as far as I could tell, that wasn't looked into. By July 23rd, police had searched 320,000 square kilometers around the incident site and taken a 1,000 phone calls with tips. They even put out a reward for $250,000. Oh, dang. Yeah. Police- In 2001. That's big time money now. Yeah, no kidding. Police set up a reenactment and got Joanne to agree to participate. Ew. I know. They took no, her out to the you. crime scene. It's not okay. I know. If if she's actually telling the truth this whole time, I can't imagine how traumatizing that would be. But because they took her out to the crime scene and they waited until dark so it would be close enough to the real thing. They didn't make her run into the bush, though, at least. They had a policewoman, like, follow her directions and do it. But police said the reenactment proved that Joanne's story was physically possible and that it had been demonstrated to be factually correct. So... Whatever that means. Police continued to remind everyone that Joanne was a victim and they didn't suspect her of being involved in Peter's disappearance. But that wasn't entirely true. They had their doubts, too. There was only the shoe print of Joanne Lee found in the spot. No physical evidence to identify her attacker. No other footprints or dog prints. They weren't public with these doubts, which is good since it was mostly all their footprints stomping around out there. (laughs) But they that's the best. <laughs> but they did tap her phones and continue questioning her. They had to tread very lightly because they were on specific orders to treat her as a victim, not as a suspect. And this was especially important after the Chamberlain disaster of 1980. 
Should I know what that is? Have you ever heard the phrase, a dingo ate my baby? Yes. Big joke, running joke on The Simpsons Mm -hmm. and Seinfeld. But it's actually a really terrible story. A woman, Lindy Chamberlain, said that her nine-week-old baby had been taken from their tent near Uluru by a wild dingo. She'd seen the dingo leave the tent with the baby. Oh, my God. The case turned into this laughing stock with the joke, a dingo ate my baby, just running rampant all over the world. There was a national witch hunt against Lindy, who was accused of sacrificially murdering her baby, probably because it's the 80s, and I guess they had the satanic panic even in Australia. And Lindy Chamberlain was eventually convicted of this crime. I don't want to go into too much detail because I might want to cover this case sometime. But suffice it to say, turned out, oopsie, a dingo had taken her baby. They found the baby's clothes in the dingo <gasps> hut. Den? And didn't they all look stupid when the truth came out? Especially since I'm a- sorry. You just called it a dingo hut like it was a pizza hut. Is that what it's called? <laughs> It wasn't in my notes. <laughs> I don't know. It was in there like little <laughs> place. Know, like a den? A Maybe den. A, den, a dingo not den. A dingo hut. A dingo. <laughs> the dingo den. <laughs> Sounds like we should have go-go dancing. Welcome <laughs> to the dingo den. Yes. But, you know, a grieving mother had to go to prison for this when she'd been telling the truth the whole time. And maybe if they'd looked around a little bit... They could have seen that, especially. Wait, did she get out of prison? Yeah, like, she got out of prison. There? Year, I think it was like seven years or something. I don't, I don't know the exact My time. It was a while. And what do you even say? The, uh, well, I'm so sorry. <laughs> right. Especially since the Aboriginal community was saying this is not uncommon. Dingoes apparently like babies. So like this was not out of the realm of possibility. And the Aboriginal communities who would know that information the best, they live out there, were screaming that at police, and they weren't being listened to. Oh, my God. And that happened in the Northern Territory near Uluru. So same police force and, you know, similar area. And they were determined not to let this be another Chamberlain disaster. So they didn't want to go full force into thinking Joanne was a suspect. By May of 2002, police had managed to whittle down the suspect list from 3,000 to about 26, but they still hadn't found the right guy. Until, that is, May 14th, 2002, when a man named James Heppy was pulled over with a truckload full of drugs. He was arrested, and when they asked his occupation, he said gardener. (laughs) It was weed (laughs) in the truck. I appreciate that ingenuity, sir. Yeah. He was charged with intent to sell or supply and ordered to come back for trial in August. But he told police he had information to trade. He told them he knew who the man was in that truck stop video. And he was certain it was the same man who'd killed Peter Falconio. Wait, is he just like rolling through here trying to get off on these drug charges with like, I have a tip? That is going to be the question for the rest of this episode and the rest of my oh. life until I get my damn genie wish. Is this guy Jay Wilds or not? I don't know. All these – this is the problem. We just need to legalize all these drugs and then this would be a non You know what? Issue. He said it had been his partner in the drug operation, Bradley Murdoch. Oh, he's saying that Bradley Murdoch is the guy. Uh-huh. The killer. Yep. All right, so Bradley Murdoch was 43, big guy, always described as formidable and intimidating, 
But again, I mean, I kind of disagree with some of their <laughs> characterizations here. <laughs> yeah. He is a big guy. He's tall and muscular and long. He's got salt and pepper hair that's in a buzz cut, usually clean shaven with the occasional mustache or stubble. He'd worked as a farm worker, a long haul trucker, a mechanic. He was known to the police ever since he'd gotten out of prison for opening fire on a local aboriginal football team whose parked oh, cars what? were blocking him while they celebrated a win. Oh, my God. Yeah, he never left home without his gun, and he'd shot one woman in the shoulder, but otherwise everyone oh. was okay, so he got 15 months for discharging his firearm, six months for possession, and had to surrender his rifles. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. In 2001, he'd been living in a town called Broome in the northwest of Australia for about 15 years, ever since getting out of prison. When he got out, he was welcomed as a hero by all his super, super racist neighbors. He even got a nice okay. little KKK tattoo in prison. So that's cool, cool, cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool, cool, cool. He eventually teamed up with James Heppy to run cannabis across the country. Brad would transport it in his white Toyota Land Cruiser Trayback. Instead of a canvas canopy, he used a solid top, and sometimes he would use Stewart Highway on his routes. But the op- Wait, this is illegal, right? Like, this yes. is illegal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very okay. illegal. Yes. But the operation fell apart when Heppy got pulled over with a truck full of drugs and fingered Brad as the murderer of Peter Falconio. Yeah, well, that'll do it. Yeah, that'll end a partnership. Police had... Yeah, don't you dare. (laughs) I will never accuse you of murder, Mogab, ever. (laughs) Even if you actually did it. Police had actually questioned Bradley Murdoch early on in the investigation, but they'd accepted his alibi that he was nearly 1,200 miles away in Broome 24 hours after the incident and told police he couldn't have possibly made the trip in that time period. Police would later. But like, re- who confirmed that? You just nobody. Told them you were there? Yeah, nobody. They right. just accepted That's it. It's an alibi, and then yeah. Well, I think they did confirm that he was in Broome at that time, and that he had been like. I think they did confirm that he. But after that, they were just like fine. But police would later reenact the route in a similar vehicle, similar time of day, all that. They made it in plenty of time. There was more than enough time for him to have committed the crime and gotten back to Broome. So police started piecing Brad's movements together, especially on the night of July 15th, 2001. Heppy told investigators that Brad had returned from a run that night, but had left his Land Cruiser at a bodyworks business in town to have the canopy of his truck remodeled. Police confirmed that Brad had gotten his canopy on his truck replaced for about $6,000 after the attacks. He said to keep the police from hassling him about having a truck similar to the one they were looking for. And it was true that ever since Peter Falconio went missing, police have been stopping every person that even remotely resembled the sketch or had a truck resembling the one given. So investigators went to Brad's brother, Gary, to get a DNA sample to try and get a familial match to the blood on Joanne's T-shirt. And they did. The DNA showed a familial match. So investigators zeroed in on Brad Murdoch. I forgot about that extra DNA and blood. So now I don't Mm -hmm. think she's making it up. Now, something about this blood smear. It was on the back of her T-shirt around the area where he'd tied her up. And it was the size of half of your pinky nail. And the smear was thin and watery rather than actual blood. What's that mean? It just to me lends a lot of 
credence that it could have been transferred onto the shirt. Is it a secretion? I don't know if he was a secretor or not. (laughs) God, I hate that word. (laughs) It's awful. His brother told him the police were onto him and he basically disappeared. They found him living in Wyala, South Australia, in the guest house of a property that was owned by a woman who had a 12-year-old daughter, and he basically turned that guest house into a little hidey hole, but he knew it wouldn't be long before police caught him, so he packed up his truck and he was getting ready to head out to Western Australia to just disappear in the outback. But then, in August, Brad was arrested for the double rape and kidnapping of the woman and daughter whose guest house he was staying in. Shut up. Yeah. So police thought this could be their shot at getting Brad's DNA to test. And his defense would actually go with the story that the whole thing had been fabricated just to get his DNA into the public record so they could test it. For real? Yeah. Investigators were able to interview him while he was in jail awaiting his trial, but he didn't tell him much. He did admit to being the man in the video from the truck stop, but he said it wasn't on the night that they were referring to. There was also no evidence to back up the stories of rape, and he ended up being acquitted on those charges. The mother, according to Murdoch, was a friend of James Heppy. He actually met her through Heppy. So I do wonder if there wasn't maybe a little more going on there than meets the eye, but I don't know. We're thinking that maybe that was James Heppy setting him up to get his DNA on file. So Mm -hmm. it could be matched to the smear that maybe they plan. I'll admit I didn't look too hard into this rape case, so I don't know exactly how he got off if there was a chance that he did it. I just had my hands full with the Peter Falconio thing. (laughs) I couldn't be looking into this whole other crime. Okay, so you have fasted. That's fine. Yeah, but I fast forwarded (laughs) through that part. But Brad says he's sure Heppy set him up on the rapes to get him in jail so the cops could get his DNA. And either way, as soon as he was released from the courthouse, police were there to arrest him for the Peter Falconio case, and they brought him up to the Northern Territory. Police believed they had their man, and they were sure of it when the DNA came back as a match to the DNA on Joanne's T-shirt. Brad said the blood had been planted. It was a pretty small smear of blood, and he's certain the police got his blood from James Heppy. He said he's always cutting himself at work or his cats would scratch him and he'd bleed on his clothes. But police got that DNA within 24 hours of the crime, almost a year before Murdoch would be named as a person of interest. So it's like, how could that be true? How could that be true? It couldn't be true. And why is Heppy trying to frame him unless Heppy did it? Ah! Like, like, what's the point of that? Yeah, okay, because there's also this I left out, so I'm going to put it in right here. Oh, good. Vince Miller, the driver of the road train, later on at trial, he said that before he saw Joanne, he saw two men at a car and a third man that looked like jelly. He he became called the Jelly Man. And they were putting the Jelly Man into the car. The two other men were putting the Jelly Man into the car. And he thinks that the oh, Jelly like Man. Oh, Jelly, like, like he was like, mm-hmm. Like, oh, I thought you meant like like the Kool-Aid Man. Like that, I never oh. want that to be an adjective no. for me. The Jelly no. Girl. No, no. That's how I and feel right now after quarantine, the Jelly Girl. I know. And he said... He thinks that that guy was was Peter Falconio, and it was two guys 
putting him in a car. Then he said that he saw a sedan passing him, like going the opposite direction before he got to Joanne, and that when he got to Joanne, she felt very warm for somebody that had been outside in the freezing cold for five hours, and he wondered if she hadn't just gotten out of that sedan that was being driven by somebody else. So, But she hadn't. I mean, that's not part of her story. That's not so. part of her story at all. Yeah. that Yeah. So <sighs> if she's not totally making something up and, or, and hiding something, because then there was some room. We'll go into the rumors in a little bit. There are other rumors. So Brad Murdoch says he's never seen Joanne Lees in his entire life. And the blood on her shirt doesn't necessarily place him at the scene. He could have brushed up against her at the Camel Cup in Alice Springs. And they were actually both at the same place. The I didn't write this down. The rooster something. They were both there different times of day. But it was the same day that they were both there and that she could have sat on a chair with his blood on it and it yeah, smeared on her back. Yeah, it's on the back. back of her shirt. Yeah, right? it's on the just back. Just like a little butt. Yeah. Yeah. And it being him in the video doesn't necessarily mean he was nearly 200 miles north where the attacks happened. And also, Joanne said the man in the video wasn't the guy. She said that at first. She later identified him. Yeah. And, okay, the dog. <laughs> the dog Joanne said he had with him. She said it looked like a blue healer. Brad's dog is a Dalmatian named Jack. A purebred Dalmatian. Like, black on white spots Dalmatian. Now, I read in some articles and heard another podcast say that Brad's dog was a Dalmatian blue healer mix. And that it was only sources like the Daily Mail reporting that it was a purebred Dalmatian. But in the book I read that consisted of interviews with Brad, he told the author it was a purebred Dalmatian. So I don't know if he's uh, lying. I don't know. I've never seen pictures of this dog. But if it is. I a, can't get over the way you say Dalmatian. How do you say Dalmatian? I mean, just then you said it like. How was I normal, saying it? Like, Dalmatian? Yeah. But if it is a Dalmatian. That is, Dalmatian. That is a very recognizable breed. Like 101 Dalmatians. You don't you don't mistake a Dalmatian for another breed. I'm breaking up with you. <laughs> yeah, you can't really get those mixed up. I mean, a Dalmatian has like bold black like, spots, spots on a white body. That's if yeah, so a if healer he's, is like if he's telling the truth that it's a purebred Dalmatian, Dalmatian. Yeah. That's right. However, Joanne would have only gotten like a split second glimpse of the dog across Peter while he was driving. And then the first dog she sees after the attack is a blue healer. So I think it's possible her memory is just like conflating the two. You know, memories are very fickle things. Yeah. Though in the book I read, they did say that with severely traumatized victims, their memories are usually one of two things. They're either total recall, like a video replaying, or they've blocked everything out, don't remember a, a dang thing. And Joanne seems to be conflating some things, leaving others out, completely misremembering certain things. I mean, she'd she'd have to be, for Murdoch to be guilty, that's for sure. She'd have to be misremembering, like, the dog at the very least. Joanne also said the dog just sat in the seat staring straight ahead and didn't make a sound. But people that knew Jack, Murdoch's dog, said the dog was always barking at strangers. He wasn't like a yeah. super well-trained dog. He was a loopy. Dalmatians are yeah. – I don't want to say this. I don't want to, you know, paint with broad strokes. But Dalmatians are known to be aggressive. Yeah. Typically, dogs. Like, they usually aren't quiet. Right. So – 
Joanne also described the attacker as average height and build with shoulder length hair and a mustache. Bradley Murdoch is very tall, like 6'4". He's not somebody that you would ever mistake for average height. And Mm -hmm. he'd never had shoulder length hair. In fact, his hair was already very short before he'd shaved it after the attacks. Like he'd completely shaved his head after the attacks. Which like, why would you do that? He just wanted to shave it like a buzz cut. But James Heppy would testify at trial that he had collar length hair. So who the hell knows? I mean, I don't know. Investigators did go out to England in November of 2002 with a photo board with 12 people on it. Bradley Murdoch was number 10, sporting a droopy mustache. And Joanne, with extreme confidence, basically glanced at the board and just immediately pointed to his picture. Identified him. He's the guy. And she at this time doesn't know any of this, like, other stuff is happening. Oh, no, she knows it all. Because here's the thing. Murdoch's arrest had received tons of media coverage. And his picture had basically been all over the place, including on the BBC. So Joanne even later (sighs) admitted in court that she'd seen pictures of Murdoch on the internet a month before police showed her the photo. Why is the media – this happens all of the time. Like, let's announce that the body was dumped in the bay. (laughs) Right. Let's – that it's like – Obviously, you're influencing what's happening. I know. Also, I haven't said this yet. Murdoch was missing his front teeth. And Joanne never mentioned her attacker missing any teeth. And I don't know. I feel like that's something that would stick out to you if the guy doesn't have any teeth. like Especially if you don't have front teeth. I feel like that gives you a little bit of like a speech like impediment or something that would stand out other than just the Australian accent. You're so Like you're talking differently. Because he was like yelling at her, like, get down, put your head down. Like, I mean, he was, she said he was like screaming things at her. Bradley uh, Murdoch also admitted that he would do speed to stay awake on long distance trips and then smoke weed to help him go to sleep. So if Mm, it was him that, right. So if it was him that committed these attacks, I mean, he probably was on drugs when it happened. So that could explain the, bizarreness of why somebody would do this and then you know while all this was going on with bradley murdoch theories are running rampant about peter falconio police received an anonymous letter from england that said that before peter left on his trip he'd looked into ways someone could fake their disappearance and claim insurance police discounted it but then several witnesses came forward to say they'd seen peter falconio but i don't think there's really anything to these rumors There were other rumors that Peter was involved in the drug trade with Murdoch. There were stories floating around that he'd traveled to Thailand and back a couple of times from Sydney. And James Heppy had drugs come over from Thailand hidden in the posts of a bed one time. And Peter worked at a furniture factory. So it was possible, you know, he could have been involved in that handover. So... I do like to picture Peter, who I have no idea what he looks like, on an island with Tupac. I'm feeling like that's a cool vibe. Yes. You know? But, like, what if Peter was involved with Murdoch and they'd planned to meet that night and Murdoch had killed him? Or what if Murdoch hadn't been alone that night? Or what if it was James Heppy? Like, I don't know. Or or what if it was a plan to fake his like own death and you know she's revving the engine something's wrong with the whatever it's called mm-hmm. the exhaust and it backfires and now the girlfriend thinks that he's been shot and he's like run off as part of like a what about know? the guy what about the other guy and where's he running off to he's in the middle of the outback Wait, what other guy 
the guy she's saying attacked them and is there with them while she's revving the engine. I think that's Murdoch. I think Murdoch helped Peter get away and then attacked Joanne. And that's why he kind of just let Joanne go because he didn't really want to kidnap or murder. I don't know. I kind of think Joanne might. Well, he went to trial. So I feel like that would have been brought up at some point if that was the (sighs) case. I feel like he definitely would have rolled on Peter. Yeah, he doesn't seem like he's like a super upstanding guy. No. I don't want to blame Joanne, but like I feel like I have a lot of questions about her story. Lots of questions. (sighs) There were five weeks of hearings before the trial finally started on October 17th, 2005. Joanne came. She acknowledged the media. She looked much more confident than she had before. More than 200 pieces. She not in her pink tube top? No, she was dressed very nicely. More (laughs) than 200 pieces of evidence were used at trial and more than 80 witnesses were called. And two of the biggest witnesses were Joanne Lees, of course, and James Heppy. Turned out the information he gave on Murdoch ended up being his get out of jail free card for him on the drugs he Mm -hmm. had in the truck. He was given an 18-month suspended sentence, suspended for 12 months. So basically, if he doesn't break the law in 12 months, he gets off completely, but no jail time at all. Hmm. That's interesting. Isn't it interesting? When Heppy testified, at one point, Murdoch yelled out that he was an effing liar. (laughs) And Heppy testified that he saw Brad making the manacles used on Joanne. And that he'd heard Brad say the easiest way to get rid of a body would be to bury him in a spoon drain, which is like a ditch by the side of the road that's covered in soil. I don't exactly, I'm not like 100% sure what a spoon drain is, but that's the basics. But the fact of the matter is, Heppy's testimony is totally tainted. There was a $250,000 reward that he said at trial he was going to apply for. And he got his get-out-of-jail-free card with the drugs. He just benefited way too much from this testimony. I mean, even if he was telling the truth, it's not reliable. Also, in the book I read, the author includes a conversation she had with Murdoch where he admits to being the one to call the cops on Heppy that got him arrested for the drugs in the first place. He was trying to get back at him for something Heppy had done to him earlier. They were, like, having issues. Man. Really feuding it. There was also a lot of doubt thrown at the trial about the DNA. There was a lot of poor police procedure and contamination. And it's hard to say exactly how the DNA got where it got. Like the blood smear was on the back of her T-shirt and it was just like the tiniest little smear. Being on the back makes it more likely that it could have been an accidental transfer. But the, Mm -hmm. the DNA also matched the steering wheel, and the gear stick, which would mean he was definitely in the van. There. Yeah, I keep forgetting that. He was there. If that DNA was reliable. Because Carmen Eckhoff, the forensic scientist, she said at trial she had not conducted a full test of the steering wheel and that after she'd done a preliminary swab, she saw a police officer touch the steering wheel with his bare, ungloved hand. Uh. So that well, evidence is tainted too. Job? I mean, have you never seen Criminal Minds? I mean, I haven't. I haven't seen that. Well, and even you know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> also, the DNA from the steering wheel and gear stick had been sent to this lab that does something called low copy number DNA testing, which is just a more sensitive technique because it involves a greater amount of copying from a smaller amount of starting material. 
meaning that a profile can be obtained from only a few cells. And at this time, it was almost a brand new technique. I mean, hardly anybody in the world was even able to do it. And it had only been around for a few years at the time of the trial. It came back with a match to Murdoch by the odds of one in 19,000. So it's not exactly overwhelming, but... <laughs> quadrillion. Right, right, right. Not at one in 2.59 quadrillion. Trillion. But to do the testing, all of the DNA samples had been destroyed, meaning that the defense wouldn't have an opportunity to have an independent lab do the procedure if they could have even found another lab in the world doing low copy number testing. But this evidence was allowed in anyway. And it became really apparent that there was a huge lack of DNA where there should have been. No DNA on the lip balm. His DNA was only on one inside bit of the manacles he supposedly made by hand. And the director of the forensic unit's DNA was also found on the manacles. Uh. No DNA from a print inside the driver's door. No gunshot residue. None of the 17 unknown fingerprints in the combi were his. No human blood on or in the combi. No forensic evidence of a struggle inside or outside the combi at all. Nothing from Joanne's pants or sandals, only the tiniest speck on her T-shirt. People, wear your gloves. <laughs> but you know what I am hearing you say when you're saying, like, this DNA is, like, nowhere? Mm -hmm. You know, like, how there's, like, hardly anything? Mm -hmm. You know what kills me about this? What? Is that there's still someone in prison for a murder when there was less DNA than that. There was no physical – there's multiple people, obviously. No right. physical evidence, and they're in prison for murder. Richard Glossop is on death row. Yes. No physical – Right. Like nothing. With no yeah, physical with no evidence. evidence at all. Yeah. And literally someone else admitting that they they physically carried out the murder. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> Mom, yeah. angry. Bah. I know. On the stand. On the stand, the Joanna admitted she made it all up. No. On the stand at the pretrial hearings, it came out that Joanne had actually been cheating on Pete for months mm. with a man named Nick that she met in Sydney. They'd been writing emails back and forth with Nick using the name Steph in all his emails to, like, hide it. And she'd continued emailing him after Peter disappeared. They even talked about meeting up in Berlin. But does she in the emails explain like, hey, Peter got. Oh, he knows. I mean, it's, it's literally everywhere. I mean, it, like it's. Yeah, he knew. But I don't think this has anything to do with Peter's disappearance. It just means that Joanne as a witness lost a lot of credibility. Neither does Amber Fry. But I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Brad actually took the stand at his trial and staunchly denied his guilt. The trial lasted nine whole weeks. And at the end of it, Bradley John Murdoch was found guilty and sentenced to a life sentence with a hard 28, meaning he'd have to serve 28 years before getting parole. But there's a new law in Australia, the No Body Crime Law, which says I that- I think that's a Taylor Swift song. No Body, No Crime. Which says that any convicted murderer who has not disclosed the location of the body cannot get parole. And I don't know about Australia. Wait, so if there's a convicted murderer and they don't disclose the location of the body, the body hasn't been found, they don't disclose it, they can't get parole. And 
I don't know about Australia, but here it's really common to like require remorse before giving someone parole. So I could Mm -hmm. see like, yeah, you've been convicted of this thing. You haven't told us where the body is. You don't get parole. But what if you didn't do it? Yeah. And you just don't know. And it's the same both ways. You can't show remorse for a crime you didn't commit. And you can't tell them where a body is if you don't have that information. At that point, you just start throwing out places. If, like, you truly didn't do it and you're innocent or you're, like, go check the park. Go check the, you know, so you can, like, get out of there. I mean, I don't know. Like, if you really didn't do it. I don't know. I can't imagine the, like, moral dilemma of needing to show remorse, but you're completely innocent. And you want to show remorse so you can get out. But you also don't want to admit this terrible thing that you did not do. Right. So Peter Falconio's body has never been found. And until it is, we may never really know what happened to him. Well, I am unpleased by that. Yeah. So do you want to know my thoughts? Oh, yes. I am. This may be. I'm trying to think. This may really be the first episode where I don't know, like, who I feel. I don't know. I kind of. I'm suspicious. (laughs) I know. I know. Here are my thoughts. I think Joanne is telling the truth, at at least as much as possible. I think if she was lying, her story would be a lot less wishy-washy. She would kind of have had a more clear narrative that she'd been going with instead of like pieces of a memory she's trying to recall. Like, what does it actually matter how she got out of the truck? And are we going to say she's lying because she doesn't remember how she got out of a truck when she's escaping for her life. But I don't know. I mean, there are some question – like, there are just so many little details that are – but I I really uh, – overall, I think she's telling the truth. I don't think she had anything to do with his disappearance. Bradley Murdoch. I think it's possible he is behind the whole thing. Maybe he dumped Peter's body somewhere and animals got to it before it was found. I read somewhere that an eagle could eat a entire kangaroo pretty quickly. So, but I also think God, I love eagles. <laughs> I know. I also think it's very possible that someone else entirely is behind the murders. I certainly don't think there was anything shown at trial that proves it was Murdoch or gets me beyond a reasonable doubt that he had anything to do with it. There's actually a lot in his case that does give me reasonable doubt that he didn't do it. So, that's what I think. I don't know. Shit. That's what I think. <laughs> oh, I think we got enough of these going on over here that we now we're worrying about these other murders in all these other countries. We're going to be doing this until we're 90. Yeah. Like, there's just so I'm, many. So many. Yeah. Hopefully. It's <laughs> oh, awful. It's awful. Uh, I hope not. I hope all murders stop. Yeah. That's all I got I, for you. I am shook. I know. Like, there's enough that checks out that it could have been, like, the smear on the back of the shirt. Like, you could have sat on something. You could have rubbed up on something. But then it's like, that also matches, apparently, what was on the steering wheel. But that was compromised. Like, you know, I mean, it's just, it's hard. Because you would think if there was really that much of a struggle, more of his DNA would have been found. Like, it would have been everywhere. It would have been in the combi van. It would have been all over her. It would have been all over those manacles. It would have been all over Mm -hmm. the tape that he put on her neck and hair. Like, you know, I mean, why wasn't it – to me – And, like, he had a flashlight. Wouldn't he have 
tried to find her for like longer. You would think. But then going back to the DNA, nobody's DNA was found all over her. So it wasn't like it was like there was unknown DNA and there was somebody else's DNA that was all over her. Nobody's was. So why? Why was nobody's DNA? I I don't get it. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks a lot, Kim. (laughs) So I have lately seen a lot of reviews from listeners mentioning the fact that we used to highlight an organization in like every episode. I would try to find an organization that kind of went along with whatever we were talking about that week, something that could just help. And people are saying that they miss us doing that. And same, I really miss it. So I kind of wanted to address it and explain why I haven't been the last couple of months. Because here's the thing. When I first started this podcast, I kind of had this like idealized thing in my head. I had like five or six organizations, things that I knew that I really cared about a lot. And I was thinking, oh, I'll just be able to find other organizations, you know? And so we quickly kind of ran through the organizations I already knew about. And when we ended those and I needed to go out and find other ones – There were certain times where I found it very difficult to vet these organizations, and there's nothing more that I dislike in this world, very few things, than like a bad charity. And the last thing I want to do is to promote or highlight some organization that is not actually doing what they say they're doing that, you know, is like... I just don't want to do that. And it became really hard for me to vet these charities. So I actually do have an organization today. I actually have a lot of organizations today. But what I really want to say to our listeners is that if you know of an organization that is near and dear to your heart, send it to me. It doesn't even have to match a case we've done. I could probably find a case that aligns with that, that I could use that episode to highlight that organization. So DM us on Instagram at creeperspod or send us an email at creeperspod at gmail.com. Send me those organizations. I will keep a file of them. And if they align to something we're doing, I'll highlight that organization. And I'll already know that somebody I know and trust, our true crime creepers listener, knows about that organization. If you tell me it's trustworthy, I'm going to take your word for it there. And as always, do your due diligence with these things, you know, look into things before. But I just found it very difficult to do that. Thanks for always taking such good care of us. I would have never (laughs) thought about bad charities. (laughs) Truly, though, we want to make sure peeps and creeps aren't putting monies into things. Like, God, what if I like said something that was a front for sex trafficking or something? And (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Do not want to do that. So, okay, so I have a bunch of organizations, and I'm just going to kind of highlight some of them. I found these because when I was researching this, I decided I wanted to find an organization that supported indigenous charities, specifically aboriginals in Australia. And I actually found a list from crikey.com.au that had a list of indigenous charities that you should consider supporting if you're hoping to make a difference. And so just a couple of facts that they give about the indigenous Australian community. More than 400 of them have died in police custody since 1991. And this article was written last summer. So they make up 2% of the national population, but represent 27% of the prison population. 
Oh, my God. Their suicide rates increased from 5% of total Australian suicides in 1991 to 50% in 2010. <gasps> yeah. 33% oh. report high levels of psychological distress increased by 56% between 04 and 05 and 2014-15. I'm sure that incarceration rate has nothing to do with that. Right. And Indigenous children were almost 10 times more likely to be placed in out-of-home care than non-Indigenous children. 10 times more likely. 10 times. So I just have so some- So what can we do? So I have some Indigenous charities and organizations that you might consider supporting. And I'm just going to link this article in our show notes. You'll have links to all of them. The first one is the Healing Foundation. They partner with communities to address the ongoing trauma caused by actions, including the forced removal of children from their families. There are several Indigenous literacy foundations. One is the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, but then there's also Yalari, which identifies children who are doing well at primary school and gives them the opportunity to be educated at some of the best boarding schools through Australia. Oh. There is... Uh, ANTAR is an independent national network that works to support justice, rights, and respect for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. Their mission is to engage, educate, and mobilize a broad community movement to advocate for justice, rights, and respect of Australia's first people. And there is the Northern Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency. They work with Aboriginal communities and key government and non-government stakeholders to deliver services in a professional, culturally proficient, and community-sensitive manner. There are also on this article some links to some active GoFundMes. I checked. Both of them are still active. They are GoFundMe campaigns for the families of those who have lost loved ones to police brutality. So if you feel so desired, I will link that article in our show notes so you can check out those organizations and help support the Aboriginal population in Australia. Oh, that felt good again. All right. I know. It does feel good. I like it. I like yeah. it. Yeah. So seriously, if you guys know of good organizations, please send them to us. I would love to highlight them. I do miss doing that. It just got, it just, like I said, it got to be too much for me to vet each one. So send them to me, please. All right. That's it. Hey, peeps and creeps. We would love for you to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Follow us on all social media at Creepers Pod. And you can also email us any feedback or ideas or foundations or charity ideas at creeperspod at gmail.com. And thank you all so much for listening to this episode. A huge thanks to everyone who has left us a review on Apple Podcasts. We shot up. We are like 30 away from our goal of 200. I'm super excited about it. They really helped Woo-hoo. us out in a big way. So if you liked this episode and you have an iPhone, we would just love it if you'd take a minute, give us a five-star rating and a review, and be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll have our next episode as soon as it drops when I'll tell Mogab another wild story. God, I can't believe we have a podcast. <laughs> Bye, peeps and creeps. Bye, peeps and creeps. <laughs> <laughs>